Welcome back to the Power Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today I am really happy to have with us Curtis McGrath, OAM. Curtis is a para-canoeist who is a two-time Paralympian. He won a gold medal in Rio and two in Tokyo just recently. Welcome to the podcast, Curtis. Thanks, Liz. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, uh, do I detect a slight New Zealand accent? Yeah, just a little bit of a twang. It comes out every now and then. But, uh, yeah, I've I've lived uh, in Australia longer uh, than I have throughout my life than New Zealand. But I was born there, so yes. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, well, let's let's just say you're representing two countries on the yeah. podcast then. Yeah. <laughs> Curtis, can you tell us a little bit about your history, yourself, your impairment, and just how you got into paddling? Yeah, so as I said before, I, I was born in New Zealand, did a bit of um, high school uh, over in Queenstown, New Zealand, and, and when I was there, I did a subject out to recreation and uh, I did a bit of whitewater kayaking. After school, I joined the Australian military I am uh, as a combat engineer, and I was deployed to Afghanistan in 2012. And I, um, as a combat engineer, my job there was to search for the IEDs and the improvised explosive devices, landmines, and that sort of thing, and subsequently stood mm-hmm. on one of these devices and, and lost both my legs and uh, instantly sort of thing. It wasn't sort of a drawn-out surgical mm. process. It was they were gone, um, and I knew they weren't coming back, and I um, hinted to the, the guys. Well, not hinted. I, I made a statement that was n- not sort of a promise. It was more of a, a hopeful comment to them and myself to, to say that, you know, it's all right, guys, uh, I'll, be, I'll be okay. I'll, be, I'll, I'll just go to the Paralympics or something, you know, giving them – a little bit of hope in terms of, you know, the, the tragedy and trauma that was going on around them and, and myself. So, like I said, it wasn't a promise. It was just sort of a, a statement to try and you know, ease the, the the pain of everything. And um, from there, mm-hmm. I sort of dabbled in a few different things of sport, trying different and new things and exploring different opportunities. And I, I got wind that the power canoe was going to be added to the the 2016 Paralympics uh, program, and I was mm-hmm. pretty keen on giving that a go. So I picked up the paddle in um, 2013, right at the end, as in sprint canoe and um, or a sprint kayak mm-hmm. as well, and, and um, wanted to sort of see how far that would take me. And I managed to win my first world championships a year later, and um, and then sort of was on the on the way to the Paralympic Games. So yeah, a bit of a sped up version of, of what happened. But yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so you were pretty athletic before um, your accident. I would say I was very sporty. I, I enjoyed physical activity. I enjoyed being outdoors. I, I really loved running. Played all different games. I wasn't very. I wouldn't say I was a, a gun at anything in particular. I was just a all right at everything so you know I played netball and hockey and swimming and AFL and cricket and rugby and yeah so uh, the only game I never played was NRL I never ever played a game of league but played a lot of touch so um, yeah it's very similar. Yeah so did you have an awareness of the Paralympic Games before your your accident like you, you said that as part of you know during that treatment you you said it's all right I'll, I'll go Yeah, in a way I did, but mainly I'd have to admit I didn't. And it's it's mainly because Mm -hmm. I didn't really have any friends that were disabled or or impaired. I had a few friends when I was very young at primary school who were deaf. 
and there was a few higher needs. I remember being at primary school every, I think once a month, there was like three or four people picked to go and help in the, the special education unit that they had at, at primary school. So they were mm-hmm. higher needs, sort of more mobility and there was a lot of intellectual impairment in there uh, and I, I wouldn't know mm-hmm. off the top of my head uh, the, the conditions that these, these co- kids had, but it was a sort of a, um, a little bit of exposure of, of you know, the di- different disabilities that were about. And I remember uh, you know, jumping forward now um, to being in Afghanistan, we'd go on patrol and we'd come back and, and you know, we had you know, satellite TV and we'd turn on and watch the Olympics. And then, you know, the London Games mm. were very, very good, or Channel 4, I should say, were very good at promoting the amazing sort of feats of people with disability in terms of sport. And, you know, we saw the adverts yep. and we saw what was sort of possible. And I can't remember the the the, uh, the ad campaign. I think it was like We Believe or something like that or, or Yes, I Can or something yeah. that Channel 4 ran. And we saw that and, and I saw that. And I remember you know, seeing people... With missing limbs and you know in wheelchairs and and you know doing all these different things you know blind and, and all those sort of things that were just you know really sort of interesting and and really marvelous in terms of what they were able to do considering what i thought was you know mm-hmm. not really um, the end but it was uh, definitely a, a more challenging situation but they just made it look so easy and made it look so natural yeah. which was i think really empowering Right. And during your rehab, did you meet anyone in particular who was an athlete in that space or was it really that ad campaign that gave you the incentive to, to look um, down that track? Not necessarily. I, I, I sort of realised you know, my predicament or, or the challenges that were laid ahead of me, and, but I also saw the opportunity in those challenges and that made me aware mm-hmm. that I had you know, the opportunity to to be a Paralympian now and, and if I could commit myself to a, a given sport or activity I might be good enough just to make it and that was empowering yeah. in my own right and and it wasn't until yeah. I went across to San Diego to the Marine Trial Games which is sort of a precursor event for the Invictus Games for the Americans and, and Australia gets invited along mm-hmm. and I got to see and this is only six months after my injury I got to see the different mm. disabilities, the different capabilities and different sort of adaptions that people were uh, using to, to do sport. And I was, yeah, in awe, but at the same time, very much inspired by what I saw there and, and saw opportunity mm. and how people were dealing with them, how they were motivated. And I remember sitting down with one American soldier and he was a single leg amputee and he was just t- chatting to me and he's very sort of nonchalant, just, just, you know, blase about it all just saying this is what it is and this is how I do this and that this and and it sort of was like I said quite empowering to to see and, and talk to people that had been through really similar really really similar situations as me and come out the other side and, yeah. and be you know really positive and happy and healthy and yeah I've certainly had the opportunity of working with with some of those athletes at the US Olympic and Paralympic mm. Committee and the stories that you you hear and the the trauma that they've gone through but how they use the sport as part of their i guess to help keep to to get them energized and and really give them motivation to to challenge themselves yeah and and to find ways around 
around things. What what do you think are some of the biggest impacts that your impairment has had on your day-to-day life, for example? Um, I, I guess I, I need to think about things in a logistical sense now um, a little bit more thoroughly. You know, if, if I'm traveling do I am I traveling for you know, a few days and uh, will I need my wheelchair so because I use prosthetic legs uh, to get around for the most part mm-hmm. and that is is something that I need to think about and, and you know if I stay somewhere will I need to walk far and because they, they they estimate that a, a bilateral amputee will use 60 percent more energy to walk the same distance as a, a person with their limbs so you know, mm. that makes it tired and you know I, I don't everyone's yeah. only got so much energy to, to give and and that's something that I need to think about and you know am I standing for long periods of time and, and what sort of situation is it hot outside that's obviously something that I wasn't aware of especially um, and not many people are is just the heat that I to, can build up because you know I'm missing the yeah. skin and in, in, in my feet to radiate that heat out of my body and, and the skin I do have left on my legs is covered in carbon and silicon so that you know that's all captured yeah. in my body and it makes me quite hot and bothered and you know I sh- probably shouldn't live in Brisbane but it's uh it's just <laughs> you know the means of which you know things you have to think about yeah yep. just those little things and, and you know, driving modifications you know, is there many stairs it's just all about access I think and and the, the accessibility of things need to be I think thought about in a more you know disabled people should be on on the, the committees of every building construction known to man Absolutely. because it, you know, it makes a massive yep. difference. You know, everyone can walk up a ramp, but not many people can get upstairs, especially in wheelchairs. So it's it's just those little things yep. that um, make a massive difference to people with disability. Yeah, absolutely. And you're above knee amputees, I'm correct? one above and one below the knee. So I have a prosthetic um, knee. Like it's a microprocessor knee on my right side, and then I've just got a sort of simple socket. Mm-hmm. But surprisingly, the, the below-the-knee amputation is probably a little bit more complex in terms of my my ability to fit it and pain in which I get out of it because it's now my become my dominant uh, side. It gives me all my balance and power. Right. And... Speaking of pain, do you get a lot of phantom pain or a lot of neural um, pain? I don't, and I think I'm very lucky. I think um, that, that might be down to the surgeons and, and how they sort of uh, fixed me up at the end, you know, dealing with um, nerves, making sure that they they weren't sort of close to the skin, uh, you know, the big nerves. They weren't, mm-hmm. they weren't so stimulated by external yep. situations. But, um, you know, when I am tired and I have been on my legs – all day it's just like someone wearing i don't know maybe for, for the ladies out there high heels yeah yeah exactly stilettos. they've been on stilettos all day <laughs> or you know a, a construction worker who's been out in brand new boots and hasn't worn them in yeah. and, and and has been in boots all day and walking and, and that's sort of the, the feeling and you just want to get out of them put your, yeah. put your legs up uh, put your feet up i should say but um you know those sort of things that they they generally accumulate over time and then you know right at the end of the day you're, you're pretty sore and I, i'm i yeah. a lot of people get phantom limb pain and it's it can come in two different you know sort of ways it can come sort of achy and pain or it can come really sharp and hard and i get every now and then probably maybe once a week i'll get the sharp the short and sharp so i only get it for a couple of seconds and it's gone so mm-hmm. it's, it's a okay. yeah, bit of a mixed bag and you can't predict it Mm-hmm. Did the sorry if I'm asking too many questions about your actual right. the explosion itself? Did it 
did it affect anything other than your legs? Like, did you get any shrapnel in your gut or in any other location? No, I, I was very lucky. I had um, severely damaged wrist on my left hand, uh, just the way mm-hmm. the blast came up. It, it, I was quite close to losing my left hand. I had a very large wound sort of across the wrist. And I remember um, when yep. they took off the bandages for the first time, I was looking in, in the wound and you could see the tendons moving um, much like... Luke Skywalker, when he first gets his hand after it gets cut off and you see him moving all the, the components in the wrist, it was very similar wow. to that, you know, obviously in a more biological mm-hmm. sense, but you could see the, the tendons moving um, and obviously if you, you go in on them at that area, uh, it means your fingers just don't work anymore. So it's, you, know, you might as well lop mm-hmm. them off or you know, make other arrangements. And it broke all the bones in that area. Um, I had, you know, I've got what they call mallet finger, which is the, the extensor tendon, the tendon that straightens your finger mm-hmm. is no longer there in my index finger on my left hand. So that that sort of thing you know, makes it makes it a bit okay. trickier. But other than that, I had a very large wound up the back of my right thigh, which mm-hmm. there is a piece of little piece of shrapnel which means I can't get MRIs, um, which is obviously as an athlete, you, you want to make sure your body's all top-notch. And, you know, with the, the amount of training that we do, we, we do, you know, get a little bit of injury and, and mm. muscle soreness, so we're going to get checked. So I've had to have CT scans rather than MRIs if I have any injuries. Right. So, um, yeah, it's just a bit of an annoyance there. Uh-huh. And does that impact on your that, that injury to your your wrist does that impact on your classification it does not paddling? because in, in um, para canoe there is no sort of categorization for upper limb injuries or, or disability so unfortunately there's mm-hmm. there was a couple of american or american or canadian paddlers that before they changed the classifications and i think it was 2014 no 15 they had were missing an arm and I was like how is that not a para canoe you know classification because you know you get a hold on the paddle yeah. and they were using prosthetics and now they're no longer uh, classifiable which is really unfortunate but you have to think you know you've got to start somewhere and they sort of had to draw the line and, and we'll grow and build from there. And speaking of growing and building when you first competed in Rio there was really only mm-hmm. one event whereas in Tokyo there was two can you explain the difference between yeah, the two Yeah so events? I do I have always done the two different cl- uh, boat classes so what, one's called V1 which is a va'a canoe which is an outrigger mm-hmm. canoe so the va'a is a the traditional name from Tahiti uh, an outrigger canoe is sort of a you know a very pacifica an island-based sport. So the, the Tahitians are considered the best in the world. Hawaiians, the Kiwis are very good at it. We have a really strong team mm-hmm. here in Australia because of the influences from, from in that region. And that's uh, mm-hmm. a boat that doesn't have uh, a rudder. So you have to steer the boat with your paddle. That's got an outrigger right. sort of support. Um, it's called a, an armour traditionally. Um, and it obviously is very sort of stable um, depending on if you lean away from the, the, the armour or not. And single blade, which means it's a canoe. Um, and then I do a kayak, yeah. a K1. So kayak, single person, the one denoting how many people are in the boat. And that's obviously a kayak. So it's got two blades for the paddle. Uh, it's got a rudder, which from myself, uh, is fixed can have a you know you have can have a steering uh, adaption but I, I just managed to learn how to do it without it and it, it doesn't mm-hmm. have any support so it's very tippy um, and it is uh, a little bit faster than the outrigger canoe just because of the the double blade situation 
Uh-huh. And so what, what distance do you cover in your major events and how long yeah, does so that take? Yeah, so internationally I only we only have the ability to do 200 metres and I do that in the kayak at about 40, 41 seconds. And then in the outrigger canoe, it's the same distance, and I do that at about 50 seconds. My fastest ever is 47, but that's, you know, all, all conditions going very well. So Yeah, yeah, because if it's lumpy or you've got exactly. a headwind, then obviously yeah. that impacts on your speed. Yeah, so very, very short, hard, high-intensity type of Yeah, event. yeah, and um, my body type, I'm quite tall, so standing uh, before I lost my legs and even standing now, I'm about 194 centimetres, so, you know, six foot three. Okay. Which allows me to have, you know, mm-hmm. big long levers and my arms are quite, you know, long, whereas a shorter person mm-hmm. would probably have a bit stockier, a uh, bit faster stroke rate. So that means just just based on biomechanics, that sort of gives them the, the ability to do short, sharp stuff a lot better than myself. And that often mm-hmm. is displayed in how I start compared to the other competitors and probably the tallest, if not like the second tallest in, in the whole sport, maybe. Mm-hmm. And that shows, especially at the start, you know, I've got there's guys that are quite a lot shorter than me that come smashing out of the gates and have half a boat length than me and 50 metres, but then at the end, my stroke yeah. rate doesn't drop down as much as theirs because of their stroke rate and uh, uh-huh. I would have come through. So I'm probably a bit more built towards the longer distance paddlers. So domestically, I can do... 500 and 1000 meters but um you know obviously that's a whole different bag of fish so yeah <laughs> yeah so slightly yes. different energy systems that you're kind of yeah. going to dip into do you think that you know obviously para canoe is now what two paralympics in do you think that there's going to be an expansion of the distances that you cover or anything that is likely to come ahead hopefully the, the Tokyo Games just gone. Um, there was a bit of um, inequality mm-hmm. based on the gender of, of the events. So that was only based yep. on the numbers. And now we have uh, a gender equal uh, event. Uh, so all power canoe events, there'll be male and female of both events. I think yep. what we're trying to do is, is expand on trying to get all the, dis- uh, the classifications you know, having yep. even amounts of events uh, at the moment, the the KL one or sorry, the VL one is not, which is the lowest, the, the least able uh, classification is not in uh, the Paralympic Games. However, it is at the World Championships, but World there champs. is sort of talk of yep. maybe throwing in a mixed K two uh, over two hundred meters, or because there's so, so many different boats that we could throw in there, but also there's the the distances so. And if we take a look yeah. at what the Olympics is doing, it seems to be that there's a bit of shifting in the shifts in the event space where we're all sort of moving, the Olympians are moving towards 500 metres only. So that can be K4, K2, right. yeah. K1, and then, yeah, but there's still, you know, K1, 1000 and K2, 1000 in the men. So there's a few different discrepancies in terms of the gender balance of it all, but there's an even amount of event mm-hmm. for male and female in the Olympics. So that's what they're trying to achieve first. And then hopefully we can expand on the distances or, or something. But Because it's going to bring in a whole different ball game of athletes for sure. Yeah. Okay, terrific. Let's talk a little bit more about your training. So you do this really short, sharp, intense event itself when you race, but your training is quite different to that. Is that is that correct? What would a typical training week look like in, in terms of, say, not early season but mid-season? Yeah, mid-season's 
it's generally the hard stuff. So that that um, mid-season where we're working on lactate base and, and power output, sort of looking at that, we're trying to make sure that we mm-hmm. can push out, you know, a fairly good uh, watts, you know, getting used to that uh, lactate tolerance over a, over the race. So we're, we're doing distances of 500 down to 50 metres, but for the lactate especially, yep. we're looking at 300, 250, 300 metres, so always more than what your event is, just so we can yep. get into, work into that lactate space and, and, main, and try and mm-hmm. maintain the output. And that's, that's pretty rough. Um, and once you get into mm-hmm. that space, you know, you start feeling a bit sick and a bit wobbly and your muscles aren't able yeah. to output any power. But that, to me, when you get into that zone, you start to feel like you're, you're able to, you feel the improvement. And a lot of people, you know, may shy away from that, that pain or that, that feeling. But if you're in that zone, you're actually building on your ability to, to maintain your power, maintain your your ability to keep going as well, which is is something that yeah. um, is very important, especially in you know, two hundred meters. But you know, as well as that, we're yeah. doing gym, so we're you know doing heavier weights in the gym. We're not sort of doing volume. We're looking at you know max max sort of reps. So bench press, a lot of bench pull, which is you know paddling's a pulling mm-hmm. sport. So or activity so we're, we're trying to you know, pull pull the bar up towards our chest as we lay down chin-ups all that sort mm-hmm. of stuff and then if we are working say it's for tokyo for example it, we knew it was going to be quite hot and humid there so we're doing a lot of heat works so a lot of um, environmental specific mm-hmm. work so we jump in a heat tent uh, or it's actually an altitude tent that we just throw a lot of heaters in and heat it up and um, yep. get it to about uh-huh. 35 degrees and about 80% humidity and, and work in there for an hour. Oof. So it, that's that really draws out a lot of energy and not necessarily mm. trying to pump out massive numbers on the ergometer or the, the spin bike, more just working in the heat because the, the body has a, an interesting response uh, to that. It starts trying yep. to circulate the um, your blood around to try and cool yourself down, but obviously the room's hot and that doesn't really work. But so... You're not trying to, you know, kill yourself on the exercise. You're just actually working in there, so low impact and, and all that sort of thing. So, and, and using the heat as the actual, I guess, exactly. training stress. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, obviously, yeah. hydration is a big part of um, being ready for that. And I remember going into my yeah. first heat. I only got probably 35 minutes in, and I had to stop because I just felt like I was going to fall off and, and collapse. So I just had to mm-hmm. make sure that I was hydrated and had a good good feed before heading in there, and or a couple of hours before at least. So yeah. Yeah, and do you do most of your paddling on? On water as opposed to yes on an um the only time you know that ergo was was used more than what we we paddled was during the covid um situation when we were unable to mm-hmm. access our facility we were very lucky um i was living on the gold coast at the time and you know queensland was not really affected in, in the first sort of stages of covid so it wasn't it wasn't but you know we were allowed out on the water as long as you're a you know, keeping social distance. I don't know how you could keep close together, but anyway, um, yeah, all that. Only in a team boat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe in a team boat, but even still, you're about a meter and a half away from each other. So yeah, all that yep. sort of stuff, silly stuff. But you know, getting out there. But then we weren't allowed to get into the the facility one one or two weeks. So we we jumped on the ergo and you know made sure that you know mm-hmm. you were doing doing a little bit of kilometers, but not you know bashing yourself because an ergo is 
just about making the machine work. There's no balance involved in it. Go, oh, there is a little bit, but it's just a, a different thing. So you, you need to be able to paddle on the water, and that you know that's where we race, yeah. and that's where we need to um, make sure that we're we're doing all most of our work. Yeah, and dealing with all the different that's conditions right. yep. that that throws up. Yep. And so in that mid kind of phase training, how many hours a week would you train? Mm. Um, probably around twelve ish. Yeah, maybe a bit more um, or less, uh, depending on what, what's on the program. But, yeah, each session would be about an hour, hour and a half. Earlier in the week, you're probably doing some longer, longer sessions. Say it could be an hour 15, you know, 10Ks, 12Ks. And then middle of the week, it gets mm-hmm. a bit shorter and sharper. But the warm-up and the cool-down based on those that output is, or that session is, is a little bit longer. And then the gym is generally about an hour, hour and a half. If you, if you talk too much, obviously that takes longer. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. And from a nutrition perspective, what would a typical day's food intake look like for you in that mid phase? Yeah. So there's two training. types of people in the morning, and then there's people that don't like eating before they exercise, and then there's people that do. And I'm definitely <laughs> a do. I feel sick if I don't eat probably within, you know, 30, 40 minutes of me waking up. So I have yep. two bits of toast, you know, a bit of peanut butter, maybe a coffee. Before Rio, I would get up quite early. I'd probably only get up 30 minutes before I needed to be at training and, you know, I'd smash a bowl of cereal and then get on the water. And then I just felt like I, I wasn't awake until I was doing my first effort. So for the Tokyo uh-huh. sort of cycle, I decided I needed to get up just a little bit earlier, maybe 45 minutes yep. to an hour earlier, have a bit of breakfast, you know, then I'd have time for a coffee and, and drink a bit more water and, wake up a bit more and yeah and feel like yeah, yeah so yeah be more ready right at the yeah, start of the session rather that's than correct. halfway so um yep. yeah i had that sort of process down pat go do my session and come mm-hmm. home have some more breakfast so that would be i don't know more toast or a bowl of cereal some eggs or something like that protein shake maybe depending on what the session was or how i felt um if it was one of those hard lactate sessions there's probably a power in there as well to get some electrolytes back into me Mm-hmm. And then lunchtime would be, you know, just like a, a sandwich or a, a rice bowl or something like that. Uh, and then, mm-hmm. and then gym time, um, I have some sort of mixing some creatine with some water and whatnot, and scull that. And then off to the gym. Wouldn't wouldn't take anything during the gym. I just would rather just drink water. And, and it's the mm-hmm. same on water. I, on like on doing paddle training, I'm. I'm I just drink water. I don't really like having Powerade or anything like that because it makes your mouth all gunky i think so mm-hmm. and then you know dinner time is is generally the, the, my, probably the, my biggest meal of the day and, and that'll be you know veggies and a bit of meat or some carbohydrates and, and whatnot so um yeah just and then mm-hmm. and then into bed so yeah it wouldn't 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 be too outrageous you know nothing too extreme or, or i wouldn't weigh my food to make sure that i'm eating the correct amount based on my energy output but i think there's a bit of you know you sort of know what you're eating uh, and what's good and bad, you know, I, I was old enough to realize that, you know, you can't eat McDonald's or that sort of stuff on every meal, but, um, you know, you can every, have a little bit of everything in moderation. Yeah. And you mentioned at the beginning that being a double leg amputee, the energy expenditure mm-hmm. when you're walking is a lot higher than if you don't have prosthetics. How much has your energy requirements changed just from say pre-injury to post-injury would you say that the fact that you don't have the extra body weight 
evens out your energy requirements or would you say that actually being a bilateral amputee has actually increased your your energy needs? To be honest, I've never really measured or or, uh, counted my, my, yeah. Are you hungrier and do you feel like you're eating more Um, No, I feel like I'm eating the same. (laughs) So, yeah, Uh but at the same time, like I'm, I'm quite careful about what I'm going to do each day. So if I've got training, I'm trying to make sure that I'm not, you know, doing other things on top of that, uh, just trying to, to make yep. sure that I'm, you know, ready to go. Uh, and that, that's, you know, that's part of the reason why I'm enjoying having a year off this year. So so that that is one of those things that I just, I eat, you know, when I'm hungry and, and you know, I eat sort of what I feel like based on, you know, what, what I'm doing as well. Okay. Yeah. No, I, th- I think that's really interesting that as a dietitian, that's one thing that a lot of sports dietitians struggle with is how do we work out what energy needs are and you know that being a little more unstable and unsteady with the prosthetics increases energy demand but then you have a lower daily energy need because there's a reduced total amount of muscle mass and so where's that sweet spot in between so I just find it really interesting I, I think the you eat to appetite and I think that gives us a really clear indication that if your energy intake is, is about or the amount of food that you eat is roughly the same that you are balancing out those two demands pretty evenly and so the end result is that your energy needs basically haven't changed that it's just where it's derived from is is different and that level of fatigue that you feel if you're walking around a lot is yeah that's right and I remember after my injury probably that the first Christmas I was injured in August and then the first Christmas after that I was eating and drinking as if I was still running and and had my legs and and whatnot and I I was packing on the pounds and it was just because I didn't Mm -hmm. have an output and I was a little bit you know I was still new on my legs so I wasn't walking as much and and that was clearly evident that I was um not I was eating more than I was outputting. So it was just a matter of balancing that and finding an activity that would um, benefit me that way. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's a really good message for other younger athletes who haven't quite, you know, had that experience that you need to balance the amount of time you spend on your legs with the training load in order to not over fatigue yourself. I think that's a really cool message Mm. and to give to younger people of as course, well. Of course, yeah, it is. It is something that it's not told to you really until you start figuring it no. out, and then you're like, "Oh, I'm actually buggered. Why am I so buggered? Oh, I've just walked around a shopping mall for the last two hours, and and then I've got to go to swim <laughs> training or whatever it is, and and you you pickled by the time you get there. So, yeah, and and in the heat as well. Obviously, the heat draws out a bit of energy for you, and it might be small. It might not seem like much, but then you know, over a, a whole day, it, you might be real buckled at the end of the day yeah it accumulates yeah when you're preparing Mm -hmm. to compete does your diet change in any way or do you do anything specific to recover seeing as you had two events in Tokyo for example did you have a specific plan for recovery in between those two events to make sure that you are able to compete as effectively in the second as you were Um, first not not necessarily I didn't uh, I I had an eye a plan and and the physio Kate O'Connell she helped me with that and it wasn't too much different from what I was already doing at home other than adding in mm-hmm. an ice bath once I got back to the village. And, and that was mainly to do to help with muscle recovery, but also heat because yep. although um, I should, should add that when we went to race, it was only 17 degrees and it was like windy and raining. So 
there was no necessarily no necessity to that but i didn't want to change if we woke up in the morning it being you know 35 degrees and 80 90% humidity so it was all about planning for it and, and making sure because there was no mm-hmm. detriment to having that ice bath um it was all beneficial yeah. especially for the body's recovery processes and then also having a you know, a good electrolytes you know uh, although i did two events my race program is actually a hell of a lot easier than it is than a training week and that's you know mm-hmm. that should be yep. the case for almost every athlete in the world training should be harder than a race as uh, yeah racing uh, or, or competing and maybe not contact sports because there's a whole element of that but the the whole process of, of pushing yourself each week in a training environment makes you more accustomed to getting ready for the next day and, and um, I was very lucky that you know, my training load was quite heavy leading up to the the event and, and then once you race and I really did feel after Rio especially that you know I'd raced I was so fit I was so strong and so healthy that my Paralympic Games was over in like 86 seconds and I was like well like that was <laughs> cool but like what else can I do and I started to think about maybe doing another sport luckily for me I I had the opportunity to do another event which really did satisfy me Mm. enough without me having to jump in a rowboat and doing two k's which is almost absurd so yeah (laughs) (laughs) oh you're a maniac (laughs) so Curtis do you have any specific recommendations for practitioners so sports dietitians physiotherapists like physiologists anyone who's working with para athletes and and particularly say for example double leg amputees any recommendations that you have Yeah I for think them? um so for the practitioners is that what you're saying yeah um yep. definitely yep. try and connect with the person who's providing the mobility so my prosthetist has been quite integral to my ability to be adapted to my craft. So I have an adaption that's yep. been built for me, specifically for me, to make sure that I can fit into the boat and feel comfortable and apply power. So if that then is talked to, if that prosthetist is talking to the coach, then is able to help, you know, develop even more, you know, with the physios, you know, why is he always or she always got like a, a really tight, QL or, or, you know, hip or something like that, the prosthetist and, or the, mm-hmm. the OT or whoever it may be can also link into the, the coaching and um, the physio and the recovery specialists that might understand it a bit better. And, and you know, the biomechanics of, of me walking around is a hell of a lot different now than it was before I had lost my legs. So, yeah, definitely tapping mm-hmm. into all those specialties and um, because they just understand the the mobility and the, the difficulty that's sort of aligned with that that disability. So yep. And what about athletes? Any young upcoming athletes or other athletes who may be interested in para canoe? Any recommendations for them? I think just go out and give it a go and find something that you enjoy. And um, I think enjoyment there is probably the main point. And, and making sure that when mm-hmm. you are doing something that could potentially be, you know, the sport for your future, making sure that you do enjoy it because there's no point doing something that you absolutely hate. Like I tried a lot of different sports. I did swimming and wheelchair basketball and athletics and archery and swimming was one of the sports that I was like, oh, maybe I should do this. I'm I'm okay at it and, you know, had some success within Mm -hmm. the Invictus Games and the Marine Trial Games and that was something that I sort of toyed with because it made me feel like I was – 
capable and, and I was able enough to, to sort of keep up in a way. But staring mm-hmm. at a black yep. line for training and it was you know something that I was like, well, you know, that, that's not necessarily that enjoyable. There's, there's different sort of sports out there that are intriguing and interesting and, and that's why I sort of chose the sport I did as well as you know me enjoying it so much. So and that was that was probably mm-hmm. the, the main point there. So yeah, definitely finding something that you're enjoying and but try everything though because you never know what might be out there and you what might you be you be good at and you enjoy as well. Have you ever thought of some winter sports seeing as you <laughs> grew up in in what's known to be amongst the best ski areas yeah yeah i have thought about it but i have not had the opportunity i actually went to book a trip i think it was in 2020 down to victorian mountains and um, obviously covid got in the way of that and and made it made it pretty tricky (laughs) so um, and i've always been very conscious of of activities that i might get injured at so trying to protect myself from that and so, for the for example, I didn't do wheelchair rugby at the Invictus Games until 2017. So, you know, if I did fall over and break my arm mm. or collarbone or whatever it was, I was able to recover and repair myself for to be ready for 2020 <laughs> the, the Tokyo Games. But you know, and that's something I might try out this year. But um, at the same time, I still have to be ready to qualify for Paris next year. So it's you know, yeah. all of those you know, cost <laughs> cost benefit sort of ratios. And, and um, But yeah, the, the sit skiing is something I'm interested in. I just, I, I think I'd, I probably want to just do it as a hobby though. Um, it is a lot of time yeah. away and you really have to commit yourself to, especially to a winter sport because it's so seasonal. There's no place in the yeah, world that has absolutely. snow all year round other than, you know, the poles. So yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially this time of with um, yeah, global right. warming. I know even in the hills of Colorado, they didn't really get well, snow had, until Christmas this year. Fires. Which... So, and then, then it I... snowed like the next day and it was, yeah, it's crazy. This, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Well, Curtis, I have thoroughly enjoyed talking to you and learning more about you and, and your history, history, you certainly got a, a wise head on your shoulders and you speak like someone who has many more years of elite sporting experience than you do. So it's really a delight to talk to you. I always like to finish off by asking my guests what their favourite food is. So what's your favourite food? Oh, I, I, I don't know. Probably, probably a good good steak. Um, I, I quite like a bit of a bit of red meat. So, um, but then I really like Japanese food as well. So some good sashimi or yeah or something like that. So it's all that all that's the Japanese do great food. So it was just a shame that uh, COVID had its had its way with the, the games and we weren't able to indulge. But um, I'm, sh- I'm sure yeah I'm sure we'll be back there one yeah. day for sure. For sure, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute delight talking to you. I'm sure this year will be a great refresher for you with a a very short turnaround to Paris. So um, we look forward to seeing more of you. Yeah, thank you very much. Cheers for having me. I think Curtis is a really good example of an intuitive eater who listens to his body really well and understands the balance that he needs to find in order to make sure that he manages fatigue levels but can eat according to what his body needs. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. As usual, please leave a message on our website if you have any feedback or recommendations for people you'd like to hear more from. 
And please join us next time when we talk to Jake Schrom, who is a Paralympic powerlifter.